so good to be here and it's so good to have the privilege of sharing what I'm going to share today. My name is Grant, for those who don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I was born on the 25th of November, 1977. Now, at the time, I don't know if you were around on the 25th of November, 1977, but at the time, there were 4.1, I'll give you the exact amount, 4.1438077711 billion people in the world. 4.1 billion people on the day that I was born. And it was a special day, my mom tells me. <laughs> and all these 4.1 billion people, I became their responsibility. I was part of the human race. And it was there because I was so fragile and and so small and so helpless. They needed to care for me. But not all 4.1 billion rocked up on the day to help. <laughs> so I was born into this, what I call a clan or a tribe called the Skippers tribe. And I say Skippers because that was how my grandfather pronounced and spelt his name. Richard Skippers was my dad's dad, and his surname was spelt S-C-H-I-P-P-E-R-S. The change in the surname to what we say and spell Skippers came as a result of home affairs, or as they called it in those days, the Department of Colored Affairs did some stuff with the names anyway. My grandfather had seven children, of which my dad was one, and I was only the third grandchild born, born to that clan. So they became an important part of my growth and development. They were important in my life, but I didn't see them every day. I was part of that clan, part of that tribe, part of that family. But the family that I was born into, the Skierpers family, Angelo and Naomi Skierpers, I was the first born. Later, we would grow to be five children. So the seven of us for the first the bulk of the first part of my life, that was my family. That was my home. And in that home, they knew me intimately. They nurtured me. They fed me. For the first good couple of years, they cleaned me. They taught me. They disciplined me. They loved me and cared for me until I could care for myself and produce little mini-me's and start to make a contribution into the world started out as a big group of 4.1 billion. It was the smaller clan. of My family grew to eventually about 60 to 70. I tried to count it in preparation for this message. Cousins and their wives, spouses and children. And then this nuclear family of seven. When you become a follower of Jesus, immediately you become part of the universal church of God. As soon as, and I love the way one website put it, the Bible affirms the universal nature of the church as it applies to Christians from all times, Christians from all places, that when we get saved, and particularly during worship like we've enjoyed this morning, we enter the heavenly sanctuary with every believer on earth and with those believers who are part of the triumphant church. So as a believer, I'm part of the body of Christ, every single believer as far back as when the church was instituted. But usually we give expression to our Christian faith by being part of a local church community. Now we're a little bit more than 60 or 70. 
But in order to really grow in fellowship, in evangelism, to really grow in worship and in service, to really grow in teaching, you need to be part of a smaller group that you can relate to and where you grow in your faith and you help others to grow too. And in our church, those smaller groups are called life groups. And in this morning's message, which I've entitled Life as a Christian in a Small Group, as well as in our prayer meeting on Tuesday, which you heard about, we'd like to focus our attention on these life groups. And I'd like you to keep this question in your mind while I'm getting into the message this morning. What can a life group do for me? This morning we'll be looking at a passage of scripture found in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verse 42 to 47. And it will be up on the screen or you can follow in your Bibles. But we're going to see what we can learn from the early church, from the first century church, that can be applied in our church at large, but more specifically can be applied to our small groups even today. And I know we are separated from that early church by time, by distance, geography, culture, but I believe that there are principles in this passage of Scripture that we can learn from and apply into our lives. Actually, the heading in the translation that I'll be reading from, the God's Word translation, has the heading, Life as a Christian. And so let's read together. And as I read, I want you to imagine what it must be like to be part of a small group that does these things. And some won't need to imagine very hard because that is what you experience. Acts 2 verse 42. The disciples devoted, they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to pray. Immediately off the bat, we find out that they were devoted. I don't know if you remember a few months ago, Roland preached a message on devotion. I looked up the definition of the word devotion. It means to give all or most of your time or resources to a person or an activity. And here we see the early church, they were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. They were devoted to God's word. They gave a big part of their time, sometimes all their time and energy and attention and resources to God's word. They were devoted to fellowship one with another. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which in the Bible, when we read about the breaking of bread, it can mean either or or both and of celebrating the Holy Communion like we did last week or just having a meal in someone's home. And it was a big part of Jesus' ministry and apparently it was a big part of the ministry of these small groups that became the early church. Incidentally, there were no big church buildings like we celebrate in and that we meet in. Most churches developed and grew out of homes. Yes, some of the early Christians were wealthy and affluent and they had bigger homes, but for the most part, it was just a normal everyday home like yours and mine. And so the groups were between 10 and maybe 40 or 50 people for the most. But they devoted themselves to fellowship. They also devoted themselves to prayer. Verse 43 A feeling of fear came over everyone as many amazing things and miraculous signs happened through the apostles. All the believers kept meeting together and they shared everything with each other. We notice that they shared things to such an extent that if there was somebody among them that didn't have, they would share what they had so that you could have. 
And if what I had wasn't enough and I had stuff, they would even, the next verse tells us, 45, from time to time they sold their property and other possessions and distributed the money to anyone who needed it. They cared so much for one another that when someone was in need, even if I don't have it, I can sell something. I can go to either put it on Facebook Marketplace or I can go to cash converters and say, I don't need this thing anymore. Um, and the stuff that I didn't take to Eden Treasures, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm selling this so I can help my brother. But even when you take your stuff to Eden Treasures, you're helping your brother and sister. Yes. <laughs> but they gave to those who were in need because they knew what those needs were. And we'll find out later why. Verse 46, they had this singleness of mind. It seemed like they had a set of values that was driving what they were doing. Verse 46, the believers had a single purpose and went to the temple every day. They were joyful and humble as they ate at each other's homes and shared their food. The people that you spend time with, are they joyful and humble? Don't say it out loud. <laughs> Maybe I should ask you, are we joyful and humble? But these people, they, it seems, they were spending time together. They were in each other's homes and they were having meals together. And I love the last verse, 47. At the same time, they praised God and had the goodwill of all the people. Every day, the Lord saved people and they were added to the group. So as I pictured it in my mind, this group of people, they're meeting, these things are happening. They devoted to fellowship, to the word, to prayer. They devoted to looking after one another. They know each other's needs and they see how they can meet and reach those needs. They're spending this time together having meals. I suspect they know the joys and the sorrows of each other in the group. And that when they find out there's someone in need, what can we do to rally around these people? And probably because of that, God is adding people to them every single day. This message is going to be very practical. And we're going to be focusing on life groups or small groups. But life groups at Connect, we've identified a set of values that we find in this scripture and others. And these values are at the core of how we believe biblically small groups or life groups should be run. Now, in our church, I was so blessed when I started here. It was about nine months ago now. Can you believe it? I remember my first elders meeting. One of the elders gave me this idea. It was Rich. And Rich said, it would be a good idea if you could get to know the people. And it was like overwhelming because we were talking, how do I get to know these 600 members? Yes, but probably around about 1,800 people that are connected to our church in one way or another. And Rich said, it would be good for you to get to the life groups. Because in the life groups, smaller numbers, you get to know people a little bit more intimately. And we didn't make a thing of it. Um, actually, it just started kind of organically. One or two life groups started inviting my wife and I into the groups and we would visit them um, from week to week. But one of the things we noticed, the first things we noticed, is all these groups are so very different. The people are very different. In some groups, we cried. In other groups, we laughed until we cried. In some groups, in all of them, we got to know people a little bit more intimately. Um, it helped a lot with me getting to know people's names. But Groups did very different things. Their format of how they arranged their evening was very different. The nights that they met, some even met during the day. But they were so very different. And 
I was pleased to hear that we embrace this because the groups vary in purpose, the groups vary in form, but each group is unique. But for a group to be healthy, at least in our minds as the leadership, and a true representation of what we believe God desires for small groups, every life group or small group should espouse the following values. And I'm going to go through these values. It's been nicely arranged for us in such a way that it forms this acronym, HS Power. And we're just going to go through the values one by one. And I know why John is getting excited, because he knows what the HS stands for. The Holy Spirit leading us and empowering us. Who leads your life group? See, I don't want you to, as the leader, think that you are leading the life group any more than as the senior pastor of this church, I'm leading this church. I'm not leading. It's God's church. And so you and I need to be, we can't afford not to be dependent on God for every step that we take and every move that we make. We don't want you to lead life groups in your own strength and wisdom leaders. We want you to depend on the leading, guiding, and empowering of God's spirit. We want to be like Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, Luke 4 verse 1 says, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit as he left the Jordan River. The Spirit led him while he was in the desert. We see this in practice in the lives of Paul and Silas as they're on their missionary trip. They're in a situation, I'm going to read it from Acts chapter 16 from verse 6 to 10. Paul and Silas went through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. That's a puzzling verse for me. The Holy Spirit prohibits them, stops them from speaking the word of the gospel in a certain place. And it reminds me that it's not just about a packaged presentation of what I must explain to people so they can understand it logically. Spiritual breakthrough can only happen if the Spirit leads you and guides you. Let's read on and see what happened. They went to the promise of Maja and tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow this. This is the Holy Spirit that's stopping them from doing ministry, it seems. So they passed by Maja and went to the city of Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. The man urged Paul, come to Macedonia to help us. As soon as Paul had seen the vision, immediately he looked for a way to go to Macedonia. We concluded that God had called us to tell the people of Macedonia about the good news. Like Moses and the people of Israel in the desert, they said, unless the Lord moves us from here, we're not going to take one step. And so for us, as Christians, but as life groups, we want to be led and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in everything that we do. You know why Paul and Silas and the rest of the apostles in Acts were so effective? Not because they had the best techniques, not because they had the best mission strategy, but because Jesus predicted it in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we saw that verse being lived out, that prophecy coming to fulfillment in Acts 2, as the Holy Spirit comes down on them in the upper room. Do you know how to tell if a person, or if a life group, or any group is filled with the Holy Spirit? 
Do you know how to tell if people are led by the Holy Spirit or empowered by the Holy Spirit? They will display the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. They will manifest the gifts of the Spirit in their ministry. They will reflect the holiness of the Spirit of God. And they will demonstrate a unity that can't be manufactured through team building exercises. But that comes from the one Spirit within us. And so we need to be completely and wholly dependent on God's Holy Spirit for everything that we do in our church, in our life groups, and in our individual lives. But secondly, the second value is that we are prayerfully dependent on God in everything that we do. And they go together. We see it in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says, In the morning... Long before sunrise, Jesus went to a place where he could be alone to pray. This same Jesus, the Son of God, who was given all authority by the Father, and yet prayer was so essential to Jesus' relationship that he sought fit before the sun was up to draw aside and speak to his Father in prayer. And if it was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us because we model our lives our ministry along the way Jesus did his ministry. And so we are prayerfully dependent on God. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Never worry about anything. Just think about it. What did you come here today in the pre-service prayer meeting? One of our elders was praying for people that come in here with burdens. Come in here with things weighing on your heart that causes you despair. And I firmly believe I was oblivious of anything else that was happening during our time of worship. Because when God is lifted up to his rightful place, literally the things of the world become dim. Philippians tells us, never worry about anything. But in every situation, let God know what you need in prayers and requests while giving Thanks. Ephesians says it this way. Pray in the spirit in every situation. Use every kind of prayer request there is. There is nothing that happens in the believer's life that happens outside of prayer. Everything that you and I experience as a believer comes as a result of prayer. And Jesus set the example for us. Before he started his ministry, he prayed. After hearing distressing news about his cousin John the Baptist, he prayed. Before and after he fed the 5,000, he prayed. Before he appointed 12 apostles, he prayed. And before he was crucified, Jesus Christ prayed. And 1 Thessalonians 5.17 simply puts it, never stop praying. Never stop praying. How important is prayer to you? Let me ask it this way. How important is breath to you? We said, is this breath in my lungs? As humans, we don't last very long. When I say not very long, not much longer than a few minutes without breath in our lungs. And as believers, I believe the same thing about prayer. That's why many people fall by the wayside. Imagine trying to take a breath once a week and then going through the week on that same breath. You won't make it further than you won't even get to lunch. But how many of us don't try that in our prayer lives? Even just once a day is not enough. First Thessalonians says, never stop praying. If you want to be alive as a human, never stop breathing. You can take my advice. I know it works. But if you want to be a Christian, never stop praying. 
The next value is obedience to God. And if someone asks you, what do you learn in your life group? People can give various answers. They might say the latest Bible study that we went through or the latest teaching. But you should be able to say, we learn to obey God. See, for our life groups, we believe that our priority should be obedience rather than knowledge. We prioritize obedience over knowledge. Matthew 28 verse 20. We know this passage well. Wherever you go, make disciples of all nations. How do we make disciples? We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to do everything He has commanded. I want you to notice that it doesn't say teach them to know everything that He has commanded. Because as Christians, for a long time, we've gone through this book, the Bible. And we've sought to know everything that God says. And that's a good thing. Because if you don't know it, you won't know what you're supposed to do. But it's not supposed to stop at the knowing. The teaching is not for knowledge. The teaching is for obedience. That's why James says, do what God's word says. Don't merely listen to it or you will fool yourselves. And I dare say, many of us have been fooling ourselves by being what the Bible calls puffed up with knowledge. First Samuel reminds us to obey is better than to sacrifice. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the five love languages. The five love languages was a book by Dr. Gary Chapman, and it was a book, and the principles of the book transformed, I wouldn't even say transformed, literally saved my marriage. And that's a story for another day. But the summary is that we give and we receive love in different ways as humans. For example, in the case of myself and my wife, my love language is words of affirmation. And so, if I need to know that you love me, you just need to tell me, Grant, you look nice today in that check shirt and that blue shorts and those, those nice shoes of yours. Or you preached well or you played the piano well or you did something well or I like you, Grant. You're a nice guy. I promise you, I can live off love, fresh air and words of affirmation. <laughs> so I give, so if I say something nice to you, that's me saying to you, I love you. And if you say it to me, I feel loved by you. My wife's love language, as God would have it in his humor, is completely different to mine. Hers is acts of service. You can see the problem. Because for years, she was cooking our food. She was putting in our lunches. She was ironing our clothes. She was cleaning the house to tell me that she loves me. And I didn't want any of that. I wanted her to come and sit down on the couch with me and tell me how wonderful I am. In the meantime, she's waiting for me to get up off my something and do something. And all I'm doing is telling her she's beautiful, telling her how wonderful she is. She doesn't want to hear that. Actually, there was a song, a band by the name of Extreme had a song called More Than Words. That was my wife's anthem for years because she didn't want to hear the words. She wants to see, show me, make me a cup of tea, massage my feet, do something when the light bulb breaks. Fix it. Replace it. The problem is we were speaking two different languages. And that's the basic principle behind the love languages. But a few years ago, I heard this concept. Someone asked, 
Do you know what God's love language is? I thought, God's love language? The answer is found in John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus tells us actually, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Many times we feel inadequate to show God or to tell him exactly how much we love him. You know what? All he needs is for us to obey the commands that he has put in place. And where do we find those commands? In his word. And that's the next value. We value being word-centered. The scriptures, the Bible, forms the basis of everything we believe and everything we do. When I came across this quote a few years ago, and I can't remember where I heard it or who said it, but for me it changed the way I looked at the gospel. And I quote, The gospel is not merely the door through which we attain eternal life, but it should be the window through which we see all of life. See, for many people, we think the gospel is the door. Yes, you're a sinner. Jesus died for you. Go through the door and you'll be saved and you're going to heaven. Sorted. Just sit there. Same spot every week. Don't move, please. You're going to disrupt the system. But actually, the gospel is more than just the door. The gospel becomes the window through which we see all of life. And when we read the scriptures like that, the pages start coming alive. The words jump out at you. You want to know how to deal with the situation that you're facing at work? Go to the word. Go to the word. You want to know how to deal with a challenge you're experiencing in your relationship? Go to the word. You've got a child that you're struggling to relate to? Go to the word. There are principles and teachings for every situation that we face in God's word. If we approach his word with a spirit of being teachable, humble, and allowing his spirit to lead us and guide us. Second Timothy 3 puts it this way. Every scripture passage is inspired by God. All of them are useful for teaching, pointing out errors, correcting people, and training them for a life that meets God's approval. Psalm 119 verse 105 puts it this way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And I love that picture because a lamp to your feet is like, Lord, what is the next step that I need to take? Because sometimes it's dark all around, but if you've got a lamp for your feet, you can see, okay, this is the next step. And you may not know what is ahead of you, but as long as you've got light for the next step. But then that verse goes on to say, but a light for my path. And that gives direction. Lord, where do I go? Okay, that's the direction where we're going. His word is that for you and for me in our everyday lives. And that makes me want to worship him. Amen. Amen. Worship is the next value that we espouse. Exalting the Father. Because that is the purpose of all of this. This is not so that we can have more groups and we want more. But for this reason, this is not so that the groups can be bigger and grow, and we want you to grow. But for this reason, so that we can exalt the Father. See, we value and celebrate the worship of God in all our gatherings. Not just on a Sunday, but every time we get together, we want to be lifting up, exalting the Father. And it's not, this is not about you and your preference and me and my preference. And we can have, in the 90s, 80s, we had the worship wars, hymns, or contemporary songs, instruments, organs, and so on. This is not about that. Actually, there's not a your way of worshiping and a my way of worshiping. There's only one way to worship. And it doesn't involve a musical style. It doesn't always even involve music. The only way to worship is in spirit and in truth. 
And God is looking for, the Bible tells us, God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so that worship, when it comes to our small groups, is both personal and corporate. It's both, yes, me in my intimate relationship with God the Father, where I express my love and devotion to Him. But it's also corporate, it's communal, where we gather with other believers in a small group or even like this, and express our corporate attitude towards God through our acts of worship. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the glory of His grace. But you also exalt the Father in the way you live. And I think that's where often we drop the ball. Because it's wonderful to sing these songs on a Sunday. But if the way we live our lives doesn't reflect that same grace from Monday to Saturday, then we're not exalting the Father. So yes, it's personal. Yes, it's corporate. But it must translate to transformed and changed lives. That's what Romans is talking about in chapter 12. Brothers and sisters, in view of what we have shared about God's compassion, I encourage you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, dedicated to God, pleasing to Him. This is the kind of worship that is appropriate for you. Don't become like the people of this world, verse 2 says. Instead, change the way you think. Don't become like the people of the world. Instead, change the way you think. Then you will always be able to determine what God really wants, what is good, pleasing, and perfect. The NIV translates that changing the way you think as the transformation of your mind. And being transformed means that being part of a small group, a life group, has both an internal and an external focus. Internally, you're allowing the Holy Spirit to help you be a better disciple, to help you be more like Jesus. But externally, you're allowing the Spirit to empower you, to impart that to someone else, to help you focus on discipling someone else. Because it's another one of our values, and it's not in the acronym, but we value multiplication. That it's not just about me and growing and getting fat. What I need to do is I need to identify someone, and that someone might be hopelessly lost, but how can I impart what God has given to me to them so that that lost person can be one for Jesus? Maybe they're a believer so that that believer can be built up in their faith, but maybe that believer needs to be mobilized to become an active worker in God's kingdom so that they can multiply themselves and then God will daily add to our number those that are being saved. We must land this plane and I'll finish off with the R. But this can't happen without the R. Because the R is the value of us being relationally connected to one another. And like Brad said earlier on, that might look messy. See, within our life groups, we are looking for people who care for one another. Care about one another enough that your life group becomes the primary base of support. Me as one person... Our pastoral team and even the elders can't get to every single one of the 1,800 people that are connected to our church. But do you know who can? The people in your life group can get to the people in your life group. The members of the group are committed to one another and genuinely know and care about one another. 
We define being relationally connected, and I like this, as deep relationships that build communities of love, acceptance, purpose, and accountability. And this only happens when we are intentional. It only happens and it will only grow deeper over time if it becomes a way of life. And just as a bonus, I'll throw the five love languages in there. Because even if you can know the love languages of the people in your group, you can go a long way to understanding what that person needs to experience the love of God. So I'd like to close before I call Brad up in a minute or two's time. If you're sitting here thinking, this sounds great, but the life groups I've seen or been part of are nothing like this. And that's why I'll never join one. <laughs> I have a challenge for you. But maybe you're not that extreme. Maybe you'd say, I'd like to be in a group like that. And that sounds a little bit more positive. But I've got a challenge for you too, if you want to be in a group like that. Because I want to ask you if you will be willing to change the way you think by closing this message with a story. I don't know who the author is of the story. I don't know where the story originated. The story is entitled, A Brother Like That. I'm hoping that the story helps you and me understand that maybe it's me that needs the change of how I look at things. I'm going to quote it. A friend of mine named Paul received a new car from his brother as a pre-Christmas present. On Christmas Eve, when Paul came out of his office, a young poor boy was walking around his shiny new car, admiring this car. Is this your car, mister? He asked. Paul nodded. My brother gave it to me for Christmas. The boy was astounded. You mean your brother just gave it to you? Like it didn't cost you money or anything? Oh my gosh, I wish. And then he hesitated. And Paul thought he knew what the boy was going to wish for. He thought he was going to wish that he had had a brother like that. But what he said jarred Paul all the way down to his heels. The boy went on, I wish that I could be a brother like that. Paul looked at the boy in astonishment and then impulsively added, Would you like a ride in my new car? And the boy said, Yes, I love that. And after a short little ride, this poor boy turns and with his eyes glowing, he says, Mister, would you mind driving in front of my house? And Paul smiles a little bit because he thought again he knew what this boy wants. He wants to show his neighbors that he could ride home in a big fancy car. But Paul was wrong again. Will you stop right there where those steps are, please? The boy asked. He ran up the steps and then in a little while, Paul heard him coming back. But he wasn't coming back fast because he was carrying his little crippled brother. His brother who had been crippled from polio. He sat down at the bottom of the step and he squeezed up against his brother and then pointed at the car. And he says to his brother, there she is, buddy, just like I told you upstairs. His brother gave it to him for Christmas, and it didn't cost him a cent. And someday, I'm going to give you one just like it. Then you can see for yourself all the pretty things in the Christmas windows that I've been trying to tell you about. Paul got out and lifted the lad into the front seat of his car. And the shiny, shiny-eyed older brother climbed in beside him, and the three of them began a memorable holiday ride. 
And that Christmas Eve, Paul learned what Jesus meant when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. We probably know the story of John F. Kennedy when he was inaugurated in 1961. And he quoted these words. And so, my fellow Americans, I ask, sorry, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And I want to flip that around for life groups. Don't ask, what can a life group do for me? But ask, what can I do for or in a life group? And I want to challenge you. There are two things you can do. I firstly want to invite you on Tuesday to our monthly church prayer meeting here at 6 o'clock where we'll be praying for our life groups. We'll be praying for the leaders of our life groups. And Brad will give us some direction into that. But then find out how you can join a life group, how you could even start a life group and make a contribution in that space. So I'm going to call on Brad. Brad is our pastor that's in charge of life groups. And he's going to share a bit of his heart. He's going to share with you how you can connect, get connected to a life group, but also what some new developments are in the space of life groups for 2024. I want to say a real big thank you to Grant. You did such a great job of that. And uh, so I'm not going to take up too much of your time because I think Grant has said a lot. What I will say, though, is that uh, this month marks my 20th year of being at Connect. I was saved in this church. Thank you. It's all the Lord's grace. I was saved here 20 years ago, and shortly after that, I joined the matric life group that was led by Shelley and Mike Smuts at the time. And ever since that time, I've been in a small group here at Connect. And uh, shortly after that, about two years later, Shelley took a very large leap of faith and decided that I was worthy of helping lead some other youth guys in a life group, which I think was a very bold move on her behalf because there was a lot of work the Lord needed to do in me. But I have been a part of life groups in this church for 20 years. And I want to say that I have love, I love this church. I love the worship. I love the teaching. I love the leadership that exists here. We're not perfect. We're, we are far from perfect. And I know that as well as anyone. But I love this church. But the place I've been most discipled in this church over the last two decades has not been when Grant preaches a great message on Sunday, or when John did it, or the John before him did it, or how, it's been sitting in communities of people that are small communities who know what's going on in my life, who are able to help me discover the scripture together, who are able to help me live it out and apply it in my life. I really believe in the power of small group ministry. And you'll see, I mean, Grant shared from Acts chapter 2. In the early church, they did both. They gathered together at the temple and they sat under the teaching of the apostles because that was really important. Our Sunday gatherings are really important. But then they lived their life in each other's homes with people who knew what was going on. When life was falling apart, there was a group of people that they could go to and say, hey guys, help me. I'm struggling. When they wanted to share their faith and they were getting persecuted for it, there was a group of people that came around them and prayed and prayed for them to be strengthened and emboldened to go out and to take the gospel into the world that didn't want to hear it but so desperately needed it. There is always a QR code that lives in the foyer. If you don't know how to use a QR code, ask your kids or your grandkids and they will show you, right? <laughs> Otherwise, come and chat to myself or Grant or any of the elders. Email the church office and we would love to help you get connected into a life group. Um, especially for those of you who might be new to our family and you're visiting this morning, this might be your first time or you've just been here a little while, please come and join us at the tea afterwards. 
We'd love to have you there, get to know you a little bit more. And if you want to be in a small group, we'd love to have you in a small group. So that's really all from me. I'm going to just close for us in prayer, and, uh, and then we're going to go. We're going to have some tea and coffee together. And uh, our leaders are going to be going into the, the Meet the New Visitors Tea. So uh, if you're looking for us, that's where you're going to find us. If you are a person who also has a really big heart for others and you love meeting them, making them feel welcome, please come and join us there because we love that and we need that together. Lord, thank you so much for the space that we have. Thank you that we can gather together as your church on a Sunday and we can set Jesus as the Lord and King in our lives. God, we want to follow you and we want to be a church that is led and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We want to be a church that is prayerfully dependent on our Father. We want to be a church that lives in walked obedience day by day. We want our lives to be based and centered in the Word of God. We want to echo worship back to you day in and day out, moment by moment. We want to be relationally connected in one another's lives. And we want to multiply what you are doing in us into the lives of others as we continue your commission to make disciples. And so, God, we pray that you would do that in us as a church. Do it in us corporately, God. Do it in our small groups and do it in our lives. That when people look at us, they would be able to see a beautiful reflection of you. We ask that in your wonderful name, King Jesus. Amen.